Welcome. This is Get Ready for Sunday, a weekly podcast looking at the scripture readings for the Sunday Masses in Catholic churches on December 5th, 2021, the second Sunday of Advent. We're in the third year of our three-year cycle of scripture readings. If you'd like to have your eyes on the scripture as I talk about it, simply go to the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops website. It's usccb.org. In the top navigation bar, select Prayer and Worship, and from the menu that drops down from there, choose Daily Readings Calendar. Scroll down to the date for the Mass and click on in. I'm Deacon Mark from Corpus Christi Catholic Church in Tucson, Arizona. I'm not here to preach. I'm here to share some background and context information gathered from the work of genuine scripture scholars and thoughtful commentators. But fair warning, it is all sifted through my own tiny brain. Every year, every Advent Sunday has a distinct theme. Last week, the theme was hope. This, the second Sunday of Advent, every year we hear about the proclamation of John the Baptist. The theme, prepare as in prepare the way of the Lord. Our first reading comes from a distinctly Catholic book. It isn't found in Protestant Bibles, except those that contain what is called the apocryphal writings, nor is it part of the Hebrew Bible. And here's my chance to drop some polysyllabic terminology on you. The book is both deuterocanonical and pseudonymous. Cool, huh? In other less showy academic language, these terms are just big words for not being on the list of books originally included as sacred writings, and the writer or writers used the name Baruch, but Baruch didn't write this book. There was a person of note called Baruch. He was Jeremiah's scribe. Jeremiah and Baruch ministered to the southern kingdom of Judea before it fell to the Babylonians. Both fled to Egypt after Jerusalem was conquered. The scholarly consensus is that this book was written long after the events portrayed as future predictions within it had, in fact, already happened. It is a legitimate literary technique. It might seem somewhat similar to what one member of Congress did recently, which was to take credit for money pumped into their home district's economy by legislation that they had voted against. But it's not the same. By recalling for their readers past divine promises kept or mercies granted, the writers legitimately bring encouragement to their audience, and the book is listed as one of the prophetic books in our Bible. Listen to the passage, then I'll look at some more aspects of it. Here is a reading from the book of the prophet Baruch. Jerusalem, take off your robe of mourning and misery. Put on the splendor of glory from God forever. Wrapped in the cloak of justice from God, Bear on your head the mitre that displays the glory of the eternal name. 
for God will show all the earth your splendor. You will be named by God forever the peace of justice, the glory of God's worship. Up, Jerusalem, stand upon the heights, look to the east and see your children gathered from the east and the west at the word of the Holy One, rejoicing that they are remembered by God. Led away on foot by their enemies, they left you. But God will bring them back to you, borne aloft in glory as on royal thrones. For God has commanded that every lofty mountain be made low, and that the age-old depths and gorges be filled to level ground, that Israel may advance secure in the glory of God. The forests and every fragrant kind of tree have overshadowed Israel at God's command. For God is leading Israel in joy by the light of his glory, with his mercy and justice for company. Okay, here's the context. Around the year 930 B.C., what had been the unified nation of Israel, including all twelve tribes, entered into a civil war and eventually split in two. Ten tribes in the north formed the kingdom of Israel, with its capital in Samaria. The two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, formed the kingdom of Judea, with its capital, Jerusalem. Both kingdoms suffered centuries of corrupt leadership, so much so that in 722 BC the Assyrians conquered Israel. The Israelites, who were able to escape, fled to all parts of the Mediterranean world in what became known as the Diaspora. Around the year 587 BC, the Babylonians conquered the southern kingdom of Judea and destroyed Jerusalem, the Great Temple, and enslaved many Judeans. This was known in Jewish history as the 70-year exile. The major difference between the Assyrian and the Babylonian exiles was that the Judeans returned home after 70 years. The displaced Israelites of the northern kingdom never returned home and as a result became known as the fabled Lost Tribes of Israel. During the time of his ministry, Isaiah prophesied that at the time of the Messiah, an ingathering of all the Jewish people would bring those of all twelve tribes back to Jerusalem. The Messiah would restore Israel as a new, unified nation, restore her status amongst all the other nations and peoples of the world, and all, whether Jew or Gentile, would come to worship the God of Israel in Jerusalem. The book's message was one of hopefulness about the end of the Babylonian captivity. Of course, the writer or writers knew that it had already ended, and obviously so did the audience for the book. The estimates are that the book was written somewhere within the second century B.C. The captivity ended in the latter part of the sixth century B.C. Now that reminds me of a friend of mine. While I was still working in the corporate world, 
He once bragged that he got great performance evaluations because he never wrote a goal into his personnel file until he had already finished the work. But I digress. We have two exhortations to the Jewish people in this little passage. First, the writer personifies the whole nation as a grieving mother, wearing mourning clothes as she laments her lost children. The exhortation is, put on your party clothes, dress up to show you trust that all will be restored. The second exhortation to Jerusalem, that it become visible in the heights dominating the landscape. This will be possible because, as the scripture says, God has commanded that every lofty mountain be made low, and that age-old depths and gorges be filled to level ground. So now, from its high perch, Jerusalem will find her own joy by seeing all the people return, and will give witness to the world of the regathering of her people. Those who were forced out will have an easy path to return, even have shade from the trees as they go. And note this language. Look to the east and see your children gathered from the east and the west. To look to the east is to look toward the dawn, the time of regeneration every day. The east, as the direction from which salvation comes, is deeply planted in the church's Advent tradition. This latter-day Baruch is not writing to predict the Judeans' return from Babylon. That's already history. The specific circumstance at the time of this writing, scholars say, is difficult to precisely describe. Writing about the ingathering of all twelve tribes, which is to occur in Jerusalem, is likely aimed mostly at those living in the diaspora. The responsorial at this Mass comes from Psalm 126, which is a celebration of the return from Babylon. It is the same as the psalm response we had about eight weeks ago. I'll read the refrain only at the beginning and the end. The Lord has done great things for us. We are filled with joy. When the Lord brought back the captives of Zion, we were like men dreaming. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with rejoicing. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad indeed. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the torrents in the southern desert. Those who sow in tears shall reap rejoicing. Although they go forth weeping, carrying the seed to be sown, they shall come back rejoicing, carrying their sheaves. The Lord has done great things for us. We are filled with joy. Coming back was like a dream. That had to be because their situation had been so hopeless for so long that when measured against their own strength and capabilities, it could only be dreamt of, never planned for, unless the God of Israel would intervene. 
these returning ones are experiencing that it's too good to be true, but it is happening, sort of disorientation. Now, Zion is a word with many meanings, generally discernible by the context in which it is used. It is a name given to the mountain on which the great temple stands. It is used to signify the city of Jerusalem, also used to signify the southern kingdom of Judea, or, in other cases, it signifies the entire nation of Israel. In this passage, it probably refers to the city. Amidst the Judeans' own wonderment, other nations are struck by the great mercy and favor God shows the Jewish people. So the people of Zion are a light to the nations. Proclaiming the extreme degree of the reversal of fortunes is intensified by the language of stark contrast. Sowing in tears, reaping in joy, leaving with only seeds, which I see as a symbol of a promise for continued life. Leaving only with seeds and returning with sheaves, abundant grain. Our second reading is from St. Paul to the church in Philippi. Now, Philippi was named for the father of Alexander the Great, Philip II. Don't you think, because he was the second, it should be called Philippi? -i? Hey, when was the last time you heard a good Roman numeral joke, huh? Paul wrote this letter while imprisoned in Rome. It is a letter that displays Paul's great affection for the community in Philippi. The Greek word he uses denotes the absolute deepest of emotion, a visceral love. He identifies his care for them with that of Christ. In chapters 1 and 2 of Philippians, Paul writes about his upcoming execution in Rome. But instead of being dejected or fearful, Paul writes of his optimism in the face of death. He similarly encourages the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord, despite their own circumstances. Paul assures the Philippians that his own imprisonment is helping to spread the Christian message rather than hindering it. In the portion of the chapter we read for this Mass, the theme is one of preparation for the return of the risen Christ. Paul also reminds the Philippians about how they are to act as they wait for that return. Give a listen. A reading from St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Brothers and sisters, I pray always with joy in my every prayer for all of you because of your partnership for the gospel from the first day until now. I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work in you will continue to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. God is my witness how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may increase ever more and more in knowledge and every kind of perception 
to discern what is of value, so that you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. Alleluia. Now, anyone who's been ordained will recognize some of the language in here. I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work in you will continue to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Language in the ordination rite for deacons and priests, I don't know about bishop ordinations, speaks of God completing the good work begun in each of us. Onward to the Gospel. Every year, the second Sunday of Advent is about John the Baptist. In year C, that's this year, we read Luke's account of the Baptist and we get a hint as to why he was such a compelling figure for the people of that time and place. Remember, Luke was not an eyewitness to Jesus. Many scholars believe he was not even Jewish. The predominant theory is that he was a Greek physician, probably living in Antioch. Most do concede that the theology embedded in his writings, which consist of the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, which comprise more than a quarter of the entire New Testament, that theology in his writing certainly sounds like a Gentile writing to a Gentile audience. Others hold the position that he was a Hellenized Jew, that is, one who spoke Greek, often as a first or even only language, one who was heavily influenced by and well-versed in Greek culture and literature. Some have the opinion that his gospel was composed for a community of both, Jews and Gentiles. In the opening verse of Sunday's passage, we see his skill as a researcher and historian. He situates us dramatically, if not precisely, in the timeline of history. There is some discrepancy in exact dates here among the people he mentions. But his purpose was not to write a chronological history but to convey an understanding of the human climate of the time, the human condition as it was in the time of Jesus. I'll read the day's gospel first, then discuss some highlights. This then is a reading from the Gospel of Luke. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis. And Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the desert. John went throughout the whole region of the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one crying out in the desert, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. 
The winding roads shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Since Luke begins with a litany of leaders at the time of John and Jesus, he must want us to know something about them. His first audience would know them. We need to learn their significance. They are important to the credibility of the gospel because they are real and important people. There is plenty of historical evidence letting us know about them and about their work. Luke is setting the backdrop within which the incarnation and the ministry of Jesus took place. Luke's opening here does not provide a corresponding litany of decent faithful religious leaders active at the time. The only two religious authorities mentioned are, in fact, perfectly at home with all the other corrupt leaders named here. Luke is telling us something crucial about the state of the world at the time. That's evident when you look at the public record left by each of the men named. Tiberius Caesar was emperor of Rome from 14 A.D. to 37 A.D. That's most of Jesus' lifetime. Tiberius was one of the most cruel and debauched emperors of Rome. He was not well regarded amongst Romans. He was murdered. Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea at the time of Christ, a first-century Alexandrian, wrote of Pilate's corruption, his acts of insolence, his rapine, his habit of insulting people, his cruelty, his continual murder of people untried and uncondemned, his never-ending, gratuitous, and most grievous inhumanity. Annas and Caiaphas. Annas had been high priest of the temple and was succeeded by his son-in-law, Caiaphas. Annas is always mentioned with his son-in-law because Caiaphas was little more than a puppet leader carrying out his father-in-law's agenda even after Annas had retired. They had amassed great power and influence from their office. We know they amassed wealth from their practice of allowing money changers and merchants to work within the temple area, for a fee, of course. We also know Jesus represented a great threat to them, and that they would lead a conspiracy of falsehoods against him. Both men were deposed from their positions due to their corruption. Herod Antipas is named. He was a puppet Roman tetrarch of the Galilean region. He was infamous for marrying his brother's wife, an adulterous act of which John the Baptist openly accused him. Herod had the Baptist beheaded. His own poor governance would be cause for Caesar Caligula to exile Herod to Spain. Lysanias was the puppet Roman ruler Tetrarch of Abilene, a region that encompasses modern-day southern Lebanon. Much less is known about him, and no one's really sure why he's named here. The Roman general Mark Anthony 
had him executed for his open sympathies toward enemies of the Romans. Luke mentions all these men in his gospel to show, to catalog, the evil and corrupt men in power. This sets the stage for John's adult ministry of baptizing people for the remission of sins in preparation for the Messiah's arrival. John, Luke tells us elsewhere, is from a priestly family, but we do not encounter him within the trappings of the established temple hierarchy. And that's important to note. Pay attention to where this introduction to John occurs. He ministered in the wilderness at the Jordan River. The first exodus ended at the Jordan. The new exodus, the one for all peoples and all nations, would begin at the Jordan with John as its herald and Jesus as its executor. In the description of the Lord who is to come, the imagery used is reminiscent of both the exodus of the people from Egypt and of the nation's return from the Babylonian captivity. It is a compelling claim for anyone to make, especially against that backdrop of corruption and oppression that Luke has just established. John was in the desert preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Each previous exodus from Egypt and from Babylon involved crossing a desert. And as we know, Jesus will leave from John's baptism to begin his own trial in the desert. But that is getting ahead of the story. Preparing the way, making straight and flat the road, appears as a task for people to accomplish for the entrance of the Lord and as a promise for the people coming out from captivity on a road crafted by the Lord. Is this a description of actual topographical changes? I hardly think so. For both these tasks, the valleys to be filled and the mountains to be leveled, sound to me like a call for us to carve away the steep, towering peaks of hatred, violence, and greed that separate us, and to fill in the chasms of fear, mistrust, and timorousness that keep us in isolation from one another and from God. Uh-oh, sliding into preaching again. It's time to stop. I pray that your week is fruitful and filled with joy. Please pray for me. And let others know they can share this time by searching Get Ready for Sunday on most any podcast app. My prayer for you is that you experience the love of God in some new way this week.